0: Your Bibles ought to open automatically to uh, Jonah. And I to just open up right there. You've been in it so long. Actually, this is only our third week. We spent two years in Romans, didn't we? All right. Jonah chapter three. You remember that Jonah is uh, writing this book or this book is about Jonah during a time when the Assyrian Empire that you see kind of demonstrated for you on page 1462. Uh, was dominant in that part of the world, and they were absolutely horrific in their methods of conquering. And we've seen how bloodthirsty they were, and how they were known and famous for this. They were the terrorists of that time, and Nineveh was—it became the capital during those days. It was a very great city, and Nineveh, of course, is in current-day Iraq. And uh, these were folks who were terrorizing. The entire Middle East. And so uh, Israel had just been involved in some entanglements with Assyria militarily. And Jonah is told to go to the capital of this terroristic society and tell them how much God loves them. <laughs> he wasn't about to do that. He basically said, I mean, to hell with them. I mean, literally, that's what he was thinking. I don't want to go tell those people about heaven. I don't want them to go there. So he heads for Tarshish. And uh, God has a little surprise for him along the way, as you remember. He has a uh, nice little storm. And he has to admit that that storm is because he is running away from the Lord and the Lord's purpose is for his life. And uh, then, uh, since he admits that, the pagans who feared Jehovah more than, Jehovah, uh, than Jonah did, it appears, cast him overboard and the storm was stilled. And Jonah goes, blah, 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 down toward the bottom. Great fish picks him up. Saves him, delivers him, not exactly the way we'd want to be delivered. wasn't in a limousine, I wasn't in a nice yacht, but inside the stinking, acidic belly of a fish. And then Jonah gets spit out on the sea uh, shore about three days later. I saw a story. I don't think I told you guys about this a couple of weeks ago, but I saw a story in the newspaper about 15, 20 years ago, of a guy who had actually been swallowed by a fish and spit out not three days later but he had been so, s- swallowed and i guess he was hard to digest or something and the uh fish puked him out and he came out they, they discovered him, and he was he was white because the acids in the fish's belly apparently had just taken his skin and made him look like an albino and so i can just see jonah now you know, this nice Hebrew olive skin, probably just turned to snow white, you know, from being in that fish for three days. But Jonah comes out, we saw in chapter two, and he writes a nice little song about how smart he is, how clever he is. Now he and God cooperated for his salvation. No, he didn't do that. He came out and wrote a poem about how gracious God was. And he, at the end of this great psalm that he writes is, uh, he says, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. Well, duh. So Jonah had discovered how God is the one who saves us uh, from his experience in the fish. And uh, that was what he was thinking while he was in that fish, which is pretty good for Jonah. I'm thinking I would have been thinking some other thoughts. Now, what happens, of course, is that Jonah, Jonah gets a second chance. And let's look at Jonah chapter three and just read this chapter. First of all, we're going to look at both these chapters let's see now what happens when Jonah, who had run away from the Lord, because they didn't want to evangelize these people he hated so much. Uh, God gets him in the storm, delivers him through the, by the fish, spits him up on the seaside. Now let's see what Jonah does. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. All right. First of all, notice in these first two and a half verses, God gives second chances to amazingly stubborn believers. (laughs) That gives me hope. then the word of the Lord came to Jonah A second time. The the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And what's so interesting, if you compare that to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, you find it's almost the same word. uh, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. So here it is again. And the reason is, God is relentless. Go a second time. Go a third time. The word of the Lord will come a fourth time. You know, God is so gracious, he'll keep coming back to you over and over again, even uh, when we have disobeyed him, because he is gracious and compassionate to his messengers, even very stubborn ones like we can be sometimes. He is relentless. He said, go to that great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So he says, Jonah, you're not getting away with it. I've got a purpose for your life. We saw uh, two weeks ago how God has a purpose for every one of our lives from the Scriptures. It's very clear. He's got a purpose for us. So He's relentless with us. He's going to keep coming back to us and say, look, I've got a purpose for your life. And you maybe have been through some tough things. Maybe you've been through some discipline from the Lord. And He's saying, look, i got your attention. Now here we go again. And He's now going to change it and say, look, I know now since I see it, saw how you responded, now I know that you're, you're cowardly. <laughs> now I know you're afraid. Let, we'll change the message a little bit. We won't make it quite th- so threatening. Uh, we'll, we'll tweak it a little bit. We'll make it easier for you. Uh, we'll you know, flatten out the message a little bit. It won't be so offensive. No. Go back. The word of the Lord came to him a second time. and He says, go back and proclaim the message I give to you. So God isn't changing his standards one bit. Uh, he's giving him the same message. And notice that for those who, who know him, we are eventually going to relent. What we learn, hopefully, as we get older in the Lord, is the sooner you relent, the better. It's just a whole lot cheaper, more efficient. <laughs> you waste a lot, whole lot less of your time if you just go with it the first time, or at least the second time. But if you wait to the third and fourth time, it just gets harder and harder. God is gonna—he's not gonna relent. His miss, his mission is the same. His message is the same. So let's go do it the first time. But we're told here, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So. God gives second chances to amazingly stubborn believers. I'm so glad He did because I grew up in a a home where I was taken to church every Sunday morning and evening and a lot of Wednesday nights as a kid. And then just drifted, went off on my own, and it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s that God came to me a second time. Gave me a second chance. I'm so glad. And then, of course... Uh, since being converted, uh, how many chances have I had? I can't even count them all. Millions of chances. Uh, it's not just a second chance. It's over and over and over again. You can turn to Him no matter how hard-headed you've been. Uh, the Lord will always be there uh, available to you. Then let's look at verses 3b through verse 10. You'll notice this. God gives amazing grace to amazingly bad sinners. Now sometimes... We don't want to go do something because we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't even want to help somebody uh, as Jonah did not want to help the Ninevites. These wicked, evil, violent, grisly uh, Ninevites. But uh, sometimes we go, we don't want to go because we're hopeless. What good are it going to do? Uh, how, how are these, what would make these people want to respond but we notice that when God sends him back, uh, this amazing conversion takes place in this city. Uh, I remember uh, this was back in '91, I guess it was, when you know the, the Berlin Wall came down. What '89 was it? And then '91, the uh, Soviet Union started to dissolve. <laughs> And uh, the, the doors were open to go in. I remember the first time I went into the old Soviet Union, uh, we uh, went to do some evangelism. I went with a guy who was a brand new Christian. We had just trained him in evangelism in Kiev, Ukraine. And we'd taken the train to go out to his residence. He had been in prison for a number of years. Led a number of people to Christ. He'd been put in prison by the KGB. He was now out, trained as an evangelist. So we said, okay, let's let's go back. So... Uh, I and one of my buddies and he get on this train, travel 15 hours to western Ukraine where all the missile silos were and everything pointed at us. And uh, the folks there had really not seen too many Westerners, nor had they heard too much about the gospel. All that they knew of Christ were the Orthodox and, uh, and Catholic Church, I think it was, who were trying to get their property back. And they were fussing at each other. And that's about all people knew about the gospel. And I remember going back, and uh, we would just go from one city to the next. I mean, think how wild and nutty this is. We'd just go downtown, and we would take some young people from, from a church maybe 100 kilometers away, and they would just start singing on the city sidewalks, and people start to gather around. And then we'd start preaching. <laughs> I'd never done this before. And uh, so people started gathering around, and we'd start preaching. And then I would say to them, if you'd like to have a relationship with Christ, like what I described in this talk, come forward and we'll start to organize some Bible studies. And, of course, our local Ukrainian would, would start the Bible studies. And I'll never forget uh, one time in a, in a town, a little town. I don't even find it on the map anymore. It was called Snyatin. It was easy to remember because it kind of reminded me of Sniat. Uh, but Sniatan. And uh, we went downtown and uh, had our little Quartet singing there had a minimal sort of response. And we just told people, look, just come tonight in the house of culture at the end of the street here. And uh, we're going to tell you about Jesus Christ. Well, it turns out when we got there that night, the place was packed. These are people who had never really heard how to be saved through Jesus Christ. The place was packed. They were hanging in the window sills, people standing out in the courtyard. They couldn't all get in. So we kind of fished our way up toward the front. And there was next to me a little little boy. He must have been about 10 years old. And he was a little hellion. He was bouncing all over the place. His face was filthy. He, just, he, he was out of order completely. And there was one guy there who must have been some sort of responsible citizen. And uh, at one point, this little boy was making so much ruckus, and I was sitting right next to him while somebody was talking. And uh, one of the men went, he went like that. I guess that means shut up. And the boy just looked at him and went. <laughs> I thought this is going to be an interesting night, you know, with this boy. Well, so I, I shared the gospel that night, and I asked people who wanted to know more about Jesus, who wanted a saving relationship with Him, to come forward. And I, I suppose there were maybe a hundred who came. And uh, I told that little boy before I started speaking. I said, through my interpreter, I said, "Now I want you to listen because everything I have to say tonight is for you. Everything's for you." So I would look at him every once in a while, and so when I called everybody to come forward, I looked over, and the boy was gone. You know, I was, I was obviously disappointed. But uh, then after I talked to the folks for a few moments about how they could pursue Christ, and we gave them Bibles and talked about small group Bible studies and so on, I said, "Let me pray for you." And I bowed my head and there that little boy was right at my feet. <laughs> you know, God can work through even the, the worst little rascals. Some of them are probably in this room. (laughs) And you you may appear even to yourself to be hopeless. (laughs) I'm going to tell you something. The gospel is so powerful, it's not hopeless. And God will send us into missions because, look, he can raise the dead. He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So if he can raise his own son from the dead, he can take the message that you and I imperfectly communicate and he can bless other people through it. Uh, God's message is uncompromisingly demanding. We do not change the message because of what we perceive to be the ability of others to hear it or to believe it. It's the same message for great or small. Notice that in verse three, he says, Now Nineveh was a very important city, a very sophisticated city, a very wealthy city, a very powerful city. Oh well, these people, they wouldn't be interested in Jesus. They're too sophisticated. No, it's the same message, real simple message that you proclaim in the most sophisticated cities of the world and you proclaim in the jungles of Africa. It's the same message because human beings have the same need, no matter who we are, where we come from. Nineveh was a very important city, and they're going to hear a very simple message. It doesn't take a rocket scientist either to communicate it or to believe it. It takes a heart. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist's mind to understand it. It's a message of judgment and hope. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned, Jonah says. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now in earlier versions of the NIV, and that's what we've got in front of us in our study Bibles, the New International Version. In the old 1978 version of the NIV, it said Nineveh will be destroyed. Because this word can be interpreted to be destroyed. But the word can also be interpreted to mean overturned in the sense that you're turned inside out. And you are brought to a change in your life. So, Jonah's message actually is a double entendre. He's saying this city will be overturned or this city will be brought to repentance. So you don't know quite which. And gentlemen, you don't know quite which. Quite which depends on how you respond to the Lord. There's a Judgment that goes out, but even in that judgment, there's hope. He's basically saying if you don't repent, if you continue on your evil ways, you will be destroyed. But there's always the possibility of being overturned. And every time that we communicate clearly the message of Christ to someone around us, it's not a a patsy message that has no judgment in it, because God is a judge and He is coming back. And we have sinned against Him and we deserve His judgment. That's got to be in in our message. At the same time, God is gracious and he forgives anybody and everybody who will come to him. It's not how good you were. It's not how much you've changed. It's rather whether you want to be forgiven. That's that's the, the only issue that matters in a man's heart. So it will indeed be overturned. But wow, how this city ever was overturned. We see what happened as we look at verses five through nine, God's message is unbelievably powerful. The Ninevites, the Ninevites, the terrorists, believe God. Gentlemen, this would be like uh, uh, sending someone to Afghanistan to go into the terrorist nests and uh, proclaim the gospel. So that would be too dangerous. I don't think we should send any of our missionaries there. Well, that's what Jonah thought about himself. Too dangerous. Don't care. Don't want to go there. Go there. And then it would be like going there, and instead of being pushed up against a, a cave and shot and forgotten, absolutely everybody there believes what you're saying, and they turn to Christ. And then Osama bin Laden covers himself in sackcloth and commands everybody to repent. <laughs> That's how amazing this text is. And what God is reminding us of is the power of this message. The same time that I was in uh, U- Ukraine years ago, we went from this little town, Sinat, to the cap- capital of the oblast, uh, which uh, in, that, in western Ukraine is Ivano-Frankivsk. We went to Ivano-Frankivsk, which was a big city, you know, maybe 150,000 people. And we did the same thing. Went right downtown, had a little choir, sang, gathered people, shared the gospel. Then we went out to a park, a beautiful park. And uh, there was an amphitheater there, already there. So we did the same thing. We set up our band and some singers. They started singing, gathered, gathered around 300 people, and we started preaching the gospel. And people visibly responded to the gospel, but you never know. Of course, I'm leaving town you know, the, the, the next week. And uh, I'll never forget leaving town. And uh, I said to our local evangelist, Ukrainian evangelist, I said, you know, this is amazing. We've seen some responses that said, I've never done this before. And he looked at me and said, I've never done it before either. I said, you haven't? I thought you'd been doing this. No, i never done it. He said, you've never done this? I thought you'd been doing this all your life. No, I've never done this. So we were both just amazed. God takes two idiots who don't even know what they're doing. And, you know, and apparently was leading some people to Christ. I don't know. I hope we led them to Christ. We may have led them somewhere else. I don't know. we you know very inexperienced. But uh, this past month, you know, we were, some of us were back in Ukraine. Some of you have been there several times. Because now, as you know, at Second, we've got a, a vast ministry with multifaceted ministry. It's integrated in many, many different directions. And they have some wonderful partners there. And I was asked to come back just this last month. I had not been there really much since the early 90s. But I did go back this fall and did some teaching for some pastors and church planters. A uh, hundred of them who are planting churches all across the CIS. And uh, so I was there and there was a... There were a few people, lay people, from Ivano-Frankivsk that several days into the conference I saw them and said, You know, I've been to Ivano-Frankivsk. Uh, and the woman said, Oh, you yeah, have. She said, Why, uh, when were you there? I said, Well, it was back in 91 or 92 or something. I said, We had just some outdoor evangelism. She said, Were you the one? <laughs> I said, What do you mean? She said, Well, our church in Ivano-Frankivsk was started. From three women, their mother had been praying for them to become Christians all her life. She had wept over them and prayed over them. And the three of them went to this outdoor rally in Ivana Franchise. They all got converted, and that's been the foundation of our church. (laughs) Well, okay. So I guess even in western Ukraine, with all their missiles pointed at us, who knows? You know, they turn repent, and the church starts. So the people repent. They turn. If you look at verse 5, this is an amazing thing. We forget how amazing it is. The Ninevites believed. They declare a fast, all of them, from the greatest to the least. That is, the ones who were house servants to the city mayor. Well, there wasn't a mayor. There was a king. But from those who are the most powerful to the least powerful. And they put on sackcloth. They took on, put on the, the expression of being humble before the Lord. They had been so arrogant and into themselves. Nineveh was known. In the seventh century B.C. is a city that was there was a it was a I am sort of city for uh, there's a passage in Zephaniah. As a matter of fact, can you turn over in your Bibles? I'll give you the page number in just a minute. Um, yeah. Page um, fifteen hundred. And here you have a judgment against Assyria. And look at how Nineveh is described. Uh, this is Zephaniah two fifteen. This is the carefree city that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? You know, God is the one in the Bible that says, I am. That's how he describes himself. How do, what more can I say? I am. I am who I am. And they were saying about themselves, I am. And there's none besides me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. That's about Nineveh. Nineveh. Uh, If you look up, it says, uh, verse 13, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate. So there's a judgment against Nineveh. Why? Because she's the great I am. And here they're wearing sackcloth. That's the power of the gospel. I mean, I know in my own life, you know, we all think we're hot stuff. We're all focused on ourselves. That's the mission of life. Promote ourselves. And when you meet Christ, you find there's another great I am. (laughs) It's not you. All right. The king repents. It's even more amazing. The story, the plot thickens. Verses 6-9, through the king is repenting. What does he do? He humbles himself. He uh, he doesn't tell the people, what are you all wearing that sackcloth for? Get rid of that little prophet. We're going to hang him on a tree upside down. No, he humbles himself and then he exhorts his people and tells them some basic things that are involved in repentance. He gives them, the king of this city, (coughs) gives them a nice little... A uh, gospel lesson on how to approach God. It's just amazing how quickly the gospel has taken root here. Humble yourself. He tells them, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. Let every man wear sackcloth. Uh, and let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth. So everybody's to humble themselves. Now, I don't know... Uh, I mean, I spent my third year in life and a fourth year in life on a farm, and that was about it. So I'm not uh, much of a farmer. But I know if you don't feed animals, they let you know about it. Correct? I mean, we uh, our dogs, uh, shoot, if you don't feed them on time, they're sitting at the window scratching. Woo, 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 and just let you know, bring me some food, doggone it, I'm hungry. And, uh, you know, they start fussing and whining. Well, what happens if you don't feed cows? You know, you you get all this noise. The whole city was hearing these animals roaring and complaining and moaning and groaning because they didn't have food. The whole city was like in mourning. So people were not eating. Their animals were not eating. There were the sounds of mourning. Everybody humble yourself. Now, why would you do this? What does this have to do with the spiritual relationship with God? What does this have to do with the knowledge of Christ? Here's what it has to do. It has to do with your understanding of who He is and who you are. And most of the time we operate under the illusion that, you know, God's probably somebody kind of like me. (laughs) It's just not too far off from the way I think. And because that's the way we start in our thinking, what we do, no matter whether you go to church or you don't go to church, here's what you tend to do. You tend to create a God in your mind. A God with whom you can get along. It's very interesting to me. If you watch the moral trends of a culture, pretty soon you'll be hearing in the church a message that is shaped by those moral trends. Let me give you an example. A lot of us in this room are divorced. Okay? And, okay, no no sweat. But we know what God says about divorce. He hates it. Okay? But what happens when you get a culture, you know, a room like this full of people who have been divorced. Then what happens to the church message? Well, the messenger doesn't want to be seen as a moral prude. He doesn't want to make anybody angry. So he'll just say, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. The Bible says it's a big deal. But you'll find that the church will change its message as the uh, popular culture changes its behavior because the church doesn't want to be seen as square or unpopular. So we generally will just change the way that God thinks about that. Or take the issue of homosexuality. And I hope there's some homosexuals in this room who feel very comfortable being here in this Bible study. I'm sure there are. Well, so what do we do? The more we minister to the homosexual community, oftentimes the message will actually morph and change. Well, God doesn't really have anything to say about that. But there are several places in the Bible where He really does have something to say about it. And where He really does say He doesn't like that kind of behavior. So you'll find that often the message is matched To the uh, cultural norms of the people coming from the society they're coming in. They don't want to recognize. We, none of us wants to recognize in our sinful flesh that God is actually different from ourselves. And that God's moral standards are actually different from our own. And that God happens to be holding all the cards. And God happens to be the one who's going to make the judgment. But He is. But when you really meet Him, what happens is your mouth is shut. And you realize you cannot create a real God out of your imagination. All you can do is create an imaginary God. And that's what most people in the world do. They create an imaginary God with whom they can get along, who's somewhat like themselves. But when you meet the God who really is, like Isaiah when he saw Him high and lifted up, then Isaiah said, I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so there's an acknowledgement, if we really are coming to God, that He is great and majestic in His holiness. And I have not only disappointed Him, I have broken all of His moral commandments. So that's the way it starts. You can't really get close to God if you you don't understand that by nature you can't be close to Him, that He's going to have to be gracious to you for you, for you to even draw near to Him. So there's a humility that comes with the knowledge of God. And then the king says, call on the Lord. Call on Him. Ask Him. We've seen over and over again, we don't have because we don't ask. We don't grow because we don't want to. We don't ask Him to help us to grow. We don't get close to Him because, hey, after all, if God's not going to do it my way, I don't want to do it. It's going to be on my terms or or nothing's going to happen. And God says, well, then nothing will happen. It's going to be on my terms. Call on the Lord. And then He says to them, turn from your sin. Don't just acknowledge it. You know, Southern uh, good old boys like us, we're really good at saying, you know, I'm not that good. Yeah. You know, we can downmouth ourselves. and Yeah, I'm a louse. I'm a lousy husband. I'm not much of a father. You know, and that's kind of cool to do. You know, don't put yourself far. Be humble. But we have absolutely no intention of changing. <laughs> you know, Three years later, well, I'm not much of a father. I'm a very good husband. You know, I'm a crumb. I'm a crud. And all we do is downmouth ourselves. Somehow we think there's moral virtue in that. And just saying how bad we are. But notice the king says, look, humble yourself. Acknowledge your natural status. Ask the Lord. Look to Him. Call on Him. And when you do, make some plans. Get your bags packed because you're going to change. And turn your life around. Change the lifestyle. Change the way you think. Stop making Him after your image. And how about you becoming something in His image? Why don't we become human beings the way He defined humanity? Instead of asking Him to become God the way we'd like to define God. That's what happens in real experience of Jesus Christ. And then contemplate God's compassion. As you know, I, I usually put this one up front because I just know myself, I can't I can't even deal with the depth of all my sin unless I know I'm going to be forgiven for this. I already know I am forgiven for it. Now I can deal with it. If I don't know I'm forgiving, I can't go down that low. I can't even think about it. It's too awesome, too awful. So I've got to contemplate God's compassion. And here's the way he puts it. He says, who knows? God may yet repent. Or relent. Same word. And with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that he will not perish. In other words, God's put out this judgment against us. But who knows? He may turn. If we'll turn to him. Now, if that gives a, makes a problem for all you Calvinists, Sorry just the way it is. God has all obviously decreed whatsoever comes to pass. But in our relationship with Him, it's a real relationship. And He does respond to us. And He will respond to you this very morning. Turn to Him and He will turn to you. That's what the apostles say. So, turn, contemplate God's compassion. Contemplate God's willingness to forgive your sin. No matter what you've done, how many times you've done it, how intentional it was. You know, I remember... People used to ask me, uh, can Christians intentionally sin? I hope so. (laughs) Because I've done it so many times. I mean, it's awful. I mean, you think about this. Intentionally designing to do something against God's will. That's an awful thing. For anybody who has been rescued by the fish, or in our cases, rescued by Jesus Christ. That's an awful thing. I've done it over and over again to my shame. And He has over and over again forgiven me. Over and over again. And if if that's not the way it is, guys, I, I don't have a chance. I don't have a hope. But I do have hope. Because it's exactly the way He is. We contemplate His compassion. That's the reason I'm still in this game. I'm sure it is for you too. Then look, God's message is unfailingly faithful. God did have compassion. And you see some key words here. Repent. And compassion. The, the word overturn was a key word. These are the three key words in chapter 3. And God does indeed have compassion. Chapter uh, Verse 10, rather. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction He had threatened and that they very much deserved. Our salvation is based on not getting what we deserve but getting what he's willing and pleased to give us, which is a heart full of compassion. It's amazing. God loves Saddam Hussein in that sense. He loves anyone who's willing to turn to him, including these terrorists in Nineveh. So the Ninevites believe God to the amazement of all except God himself. Now let's look at chapter four. And we're going to see God gives a gracious mission to amazingly slow learners. <laughs> And he has to teach us about this mission. Because you're going to see Jonah's reaction was not a very good reaction. But God was even gracious to him. Look at chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Now look at that. God has done one of the greatest missionary enterprises in the history of the world. This is a massive turnaround. Of the most wicked city in the world. Do you think Billy Graham would go back to his motel room and say, Oh, crud. That's what Jonah did. Dang! He's angry. He's ticked off. What's the deal here? Well, let's look and see. He prayed to the Lord. He even had the gall to pray (laughs) in his anger. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. See, Jonah saying, "Lord, see you now. See, Lord, I was justified going to Tarshish because I knew you're going to do this. <laughs> I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live." <laughs> Gosh, what a pitiful person. Verse four, but the Lord replied, "Have you any right to be angry?" Jonah went out and said down at a place east of the city. Then he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. (laughs) Thanks, God. (laughs) Oh, God has a sense of humor. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. Thanks, God. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But The Lord said, you've been concerned about this stupid little vine. That's the Wilson version there. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Boy, here's what we get. Experienced believers must confront their resistance to God's mission. Now, we did that uh, two weeks ago. Let me just remind us, we, we looked at how we find our mission in life. Just to, just to give this to you for just another moment. Because every single one of us has a mission. And it may not be revealed in detail in the Scriptures, but it is revealed that God has called each one of us to be fishers of men. He's called each one of us to walk with Him. He's called each one of us to take on the concerns of this world, of our city, our great city, and of our nation. And through this approach we saw a few weeks ago, that we are to discern what God's purpose in our life is. And we're to stay in this approach until we have a sense of God's leading in our life. And then we saw there are things that, that we resist. Or reasons why we resist. Because we're afraid. We don't want to set ourselves up for failure. We saw that one of the, the greatest motivations of, of men in our own day is fear of failure. The reason we're successful is because we're afraid we're going to collapse and fall down. So fear. Weariness, loss of vision, selling out. You know, you start walking with Christ, some good things start happening, cash it in. Uh, Loss of self-confidence and pride and grandiosity got Solomon and then misguided anger with Jonah. So what's impeding Jonah from fulfilling his mission? This misguided anger. He hates people. He hates people. And he has not dealt with that. And it is impeding his mission. And we've seen how even today, some of us have anger problems. I don't have an anger problem. I know. Everybody but you. Uh, we have anger problems. And when you do, it's going to impede your mission, just like it did Jonah. Because you can't really fulfill the mission of Christ, which is a mission of love, when you hate people. And so some of us hate people that we live with. How are you going to serve somebody that you hate? How are you going to serve somebody that you hate at work? Uh, well, Jonah was trying to do that, and he was doing it very mechanically. And uh, he had to find out that there was resistance in his own heart. Sometimes we do not love what he loves. You get that in verse 1. He's angry because, because he didn't love the people God loved. Sometimes uh, we do not learn for our mistakes. Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? And we're sitting here thinking, Jonah, Duh! Did you not understand that that mentality is exactly what got you thrown overboard? And here you're going back and using the same old cruddy rationale to explain your, and to justify your anger. Is this not uh, simple repentance that would solve this? Sometimes we do not learn from our mistakes. Jonah really had not learned. He was externally repentant. But as we saw last week, he really had not repented in his heart. Now, we notice God is gracious. When your repentance is superficial, he'll just take you where you are. And he'll lead you on to the next trial. Jonah's still being tried here. And he still has a lot to learn. So God just took him for what, he gave, for what Jonah gave, worked with him, and took him to the next step. But Jonah's finding out that his repentance was really not heartfelt. It was not uh, as thorough as God wanted it to be. And then we see that sometimes our good theology does not lead to a good life. He says, I know that you are generous and compassionate. Good, Jonah. Good, you got it. Now put it into practice. If God is generous, why don't you be generous? If God is compassionate, why don't you be compassionate? If God loves a whore, His church, like Hosea had to take back a whore, Hosea, Why don't you be patient with your wife? So it's one thing to have good theology. It's another thing to live out good theology. And they're very different ideas. And I find this is especially true in Presbyterian churches, so all you Baptists, Episcopalians, Roman Catholics, just hang on a second. But Presbyterians will often think that we are becoming really mature Christians the more knowledge we have. Presbyterians have always focused on teaching, doctrine. I mean, our confession of faith... I mean, just look in the back of this Bible. Our confession of faith is that long. How many people have a confession of faith that long? (laughs) Presbyterians. And for us, sometimes we get confused and think that's what it means to be delivered by God, is to have your mind delivered into good theology. While a city continues to starve and be out of work and have lousy school systems. Oh, but we're Christians because of our theology. Jonah had exquisite theology. God is generous. And compassionate.
1: Doggone it, God. I wish you
0: weren't generous and compassionate. That's what Jonah was saying. Sometimes we are ridiculously self-absorbed. Now, oh Lord, take away my life. These people have been converted. These people I hated and I wanted you to destroy. It's all about me. It's unbelievable how narcissistic Jonah can be. And that's going to keep you from fulfilling your mission. If God has given you a mission, which He has given you, It's only going to be fulfilled as you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. In order to fulfill the mission of Christ in your life, there's going to be a death. A death to yourself. Now, all of you are going to die. But the follower of Christ decides to die right now. Let's go ahead and get it over with. So I go ahead and die now. All the things I want to hang on to, all the things I want to achieve, all the things I want to grasp, I'm going to die to myself now. Now I'm ready to live. I'm living on borrowed time because I've already died. The missionary who went to the South Pacific in the Fiji Islands a couple hundred years ago dropped off by an English admiral. And the admiral said to him, sir, don't you know these people are going to eat you? They're cannibals. You're going to die. And John Patton, the missionary, said, sir, we've already died. And then, of course, they led that whole island system to Christ. The only way you can fulfill your mission is go ahead and die to yourself. Now you'll find yourself being effective. Jonah was into himself and the exercise of his own anger and vengeance. The world was rotating around Jonah and his people. Experienced believers must hear God's call to his world mission. This is exactly what God is doing. God is going to tell them this little parable. Or well, you're not going to tell him, he's going to show him. Has him out in the desert. And, you know, we've read enough about Iraq. Maybe a few of you have been there. It gets hot. 110 degrees. 115 degrees. 120 sometimes. Out in the desert with no covering for your head. And when you get a little bald spot in the back, some of your, you have a big bald spot on your head. It's your whole head. <laughs> you have a little bald spot on your head and you're in the sun. Woo! starts to bake. Jonah was baking. And this little vine comes up. Gives him shade. Oh, whew, oh, thank you, Lord. You know, because it's all about me and I have shade. And then the Lord sends a little worm. Isn't the Lord clever? Sends a little worm to eat the, eat the vine. And it, it's destroyed. And Jonah says, I'm so angry I could die. <laughs> and God just simply says, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? Did you create that vine? Did you have anything to do with it? Did you water it? Did you tend it? Did you see if it had worms? No. You were completely dependent upon me. I sent it in the first place, and now I've taken it away. What's your right to complain? Jonah, you're complaining about nothing. You're focused on yourself. We are far too focused on ourselves, he's saying through this parable. And then secondly, the Lord is teaching through this that... um, we are far too little focused upon the needs of others. And he says about Nineveh, he says, "Jonah, have you considered? Nineveh has hundred and twenty thousand people in it. Have you thought about these people? That the world is not just broken up into Jew and Gentile, or as we might say, broken up into those who are in the church and those who are not in the church. No, God says it's different than that. They're all people." They're all my creatures. And I have a concern about all the people in the world and all the people in this city. Have you considered the numbers? 1.2 million people in Memphis. And have you started to think that maybe not all like me? Maybe they're not all Catholics. Maybe they're not all Baptists. Maybe they're not all Presbyterians. Maybe they're not all Christians. But they're people. And God has a concern for this great city. Not 120,000. Ten times that. 1.2 million. And have you considered their problems? The evil that is there. Yes, there's evil. I'm concerned about that, but I'm also concerned about the destruction that that evil is having upon their own lives. Because I made them. And they're made in my image. And have you considered that I am greatly concerned and have a passion for this city? Jonah, have you thought for a minute that what you care about might not be what I care about? And have you begun to think that maybe what I care about is not what you care about? Because I care about this wicked city. Gentlemen, this is awesome when we think about its implications for us in our own day. Because we, too, live in a world that sometimes we know not enough about. Let's take a look at just the world that we live in for just a moment. It has, as of a few years ago anyway, six billion people. That's a lot of people. If God is concerned about Nineveh, I guarantee he's concerned about all the other cities. You can't get any worse than Nineveh. And he's concerned about six billion people. How many of them have heard the gospel? 4.2 billion of them have probably heard the gospel in some form or fashion. 70% of the population. Of those 70% who have heard, 600 million seem to be honest-to-goodness believers. That's an estimate. And that's that's discerned by telling you. You can ask certain lifestyle questions, certain questions about their taste or distaste for the Bible, certain questions about their prayer life or their church life, certain things like that. And you can begin to make some sort of estimate. How many here do you really think have been delivered, have been saved? And then of that 70%, uh, 1.2 billion are connected to the church by name only. They're nominally connected, uh, but they don't seem to have a living faith. So there you have 1.8 billion who are nominally related to the church. And then you have 2.4 billion of those who have heard uh, that would be over half of the ones who have heard, from which there is no favorable response. But what about the 1.8 billion who have not even heard? 30% of this world's population live in Nineveh. A wicked city, a wicked place, that has no Jonah in it at all. No gospel witness. Do you think God cares about it? I think that's the reason that Jonah is in your Bible. Because God does care about 1.8 billion Ninevites that live in our own day. Who are these eight, 1.8 billion people? Well, let's look for just a moment at what we call ethno linguistic groups. There are 16,000 ethno linguistic groups. That means they have a common ethnic heritage with a common language or dialect. And so, of course, we want to communicate the gospel in that dialect because most of the people wouldn't understand unless you did. There are 6,875 of them that are unreached or severely underreached. That would mean less than 2% of what we would call real believers in those ethnic, ethno-linguistic groups. Now, a lot of those have less than 10,000 people in them. There are a lot of small ethno-linguistic groups that have not been reached. But there are some that are still quite significant. So this 1.8 billion are found in those 6,875 of functionally unreached ethno-linguistic groups. How do you reach an ethno-linguistic group? You have to send somebody. Somebody's got to go. There has to be a Jonah who will go and learn that ethnic culture and learn that language and communicate the Scriptures and the Gospel in particular in that language. We've been making a lot of progress, I might add, but we've got a long way to go. Let's look at it physically for just a minute. 800 million people in this world today are hungry out of 6 billion. That's a lot of hungry people. 1.1 billion have no potable water. Is that not remarkable in our day that over one out of six, you know, somewhere around 18% of the world's population does not have potable water, around 20% of the world's population has no medical care except for a witch doctor at the best? 34,000 children die every day of preventable diseases. Preventable diseases like malaria uh, or some other very basic things that we just go to the corner doctor over here and get it fixed in a a day. 34,000 children per day are dying of this. What's the need? If we were to meet all of the reasonable needs for food, potable water, medical care, and education around the world Uh, the estimate uh, is around 50 billion dollars per year to do this now that's just on the material side let's compare that to something that maybe we can put into context how much do you think americans spend on our diet programs and weight loss programs well we don't know exactly but here's the last estimate i saw 50 billion dollars So basically, we can feed and water and care for and educate the world with the same resources we use to try to keep the weight off. Isn't that incredible? So, gentlemen, uh, meeting the world's uh, problems is not an issue of resources. It's not even an issue of intelligence. We've got plenty of plans. The UN has plans. Plenty of Christian agencies have plans. We've got all kinds of plans to meet the needs of the world. But the problem is one of the heart. It's Jonah's heart. You know, do we know what our mission in life is? Are we honestly confronting the resistance to it? In Jonah's case, it was anger. Are we honestly looking to the Lord and like the Ninevites, putting on the sackcloth, calling upon the Lord, turning from our wicked ways and engaging his his mission? Let me just show you. We've got another three or four minutes. Let me just show you a couple of things here that might help get a, a little idea of this. If you ask yourself the question about the least evangelized people in the world, this uh, this cross hatching here uh, is, shows you the least evangelized people in the world. And uh, this 1040 window has become quite famous. It's 10 degrees north to 40 degrees north from West Africa all the way over to Japan. And all, almost all of your least evangelized countries... Uh, will fall into what's known as the 1040 window. So just get an eye, just look at that across the country, all the way from all across the world, all the way from China, India. Here you have the Middle East, Northern Africa, uh, and the stands, <laughs> you know, so many of those uh, Muslim countries up in here. And then if you look also at the uh, issues of poverty, the poorest countries, you'll find the same sort of thing. The poorest countries are the deep red. They make between 0 and $500 per year. And look where the deep red is in Africa, China, India, into somewhat of the Muslim world. Here you have the oil resources that mitigate it. But you can see some parallel there. Now, if we were to combine them, I think I have another thing here that we can show. Yeah. If we combine the poor and the unevangelized, here's what you get. The deep red showing you the poorest and the cross-hatching showing you the least evangelized. Notice that in this 1040 window, And, you know, you wonder why all this resistance, why all this violence, why all these problems. Well, what you've you've got is the least evangelized countries. Basically, I would suggest to you leading to the worst poverty situations. Ninety nine percent of the world's least uh, the the poorest, least evangelized people in the world are in that little box right there. Ten forty window. And this is the most resistant area uh, in the world to the gospel. And in, in, in some ways, it's the most violent area. If you look at it from a religious profile, you see here that here's the Muslim world, dominantly Muslim. There's Hindu world in India. Here's the Buddhist world in Southeast Asia. So you have these very resistant strains of religion to reaching them with the message that Jonah was carrying to Nineveh. And you can look at that and say, what's the use? We've been trying you know, for decades, for centuries to reach them. What's the use? And that's the reason that less than 5% of our financial resources go into that part of the world in missions. Can you believe that? Less than 10% of our missionaries go to the least evangelized world. Most of them go to the nominally Christian world. There's a lot of work to be done in the nominal world. But there's Ninevite work to be done in this part of the world. So even Christians, even missionaries resist the Ninevites because it's tough. There are many things in us that would cause us not to go. There are things in this city that are tough. 30% unemployment among men 18 to 30 in Memphis proper. 30%. What do men do when they're unemployed? Is it not obvious? That's the reason we have so many problems. We've got to go into the city. And some of us are specialists in keeping ourselves untainted by the dirt in the city. That's what Jonah wanted to do. He was angry at the city. He wanted anything to do with it we've got unemployment. We've got more kids between 18 and 22 in prison than in college in Memphis proper. We have 120,000 kids between the age of 5 and 18. 25,000 of them appeared before juvenile court last year. This is number too. And here's God's message. I love those people. So when you're doing my will, you'll know it because you'll love them too. And you'll take them to heart. And this will become part of your life mission. To reach the people that God loves. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for that great city that represents a great world with all of our need, with all of our immorality and all of our rebellion. Lord, help us to remember that we, like Jonah, are the rebels. We are the ones who have experienced Your grace. And therefore, we're the ones to proclaim it everywhere. Thank you for the men in this room. Thank you for all that they are doing here and around the world to promote your kingdom. Please continue to bless them. And Lord, would you please continue to overcome the resistance in our own hearts? Because we find ourselves like Jonah sometimes. We get angry, bitter, resistant. Please, Lord, continue to overwhelm our resistance that we may be continued in the mission of Jesus Christ. Go with us now, Lord especially during this Christmas season, we're so thankful that for all the reasons that Jesus would not have wanted to come to this earth, He came and He brought the message and He brought life and He became poor that we might become wealthy. And we are deeply, deeply grateful. And we praise You and thank You through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. God bless you all. A merry, merry Christmas. Yes, sir.